Let's uh, flip over to uh, Acts chapter 12, jump into a new section here, and we'll uh, jump right in and start reading. In Acts chapter 12, and verse 1, it says this, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews... He proceeded to arrest Peter also, and this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to uh, bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought it was, he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure... The Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and where they were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but monitoring, excuse me, uh, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So it's a pretty incredible story, a pretty incredible account of Peter and James and the church and everything that's going on. One of the major themes of the book of Acts is essentially how God's work continues in difficulty. That's what you see through the whole book, radical persecution and yet radical gospel spreading. As I was reading this, and really what I want to cover today is, I think, a question and hopefully some answers that we all struggle with and really that that almost every person in the world struggles with, and it's the question, why? (laughs) Why? This is a very fascinating story because you have great tragedy. James is slain, but it's like a footnote in the story. Have you noticed that? James gets like two lines. Herod doesn't, is trying to please the Jews. There's a whole context to that that we're not going to cover today, but Herod is it's a name, but it's also kind of a title. It's Agrippa I in this case. And, he's, and he was, uh, uh, had Jewish ties, and so it was big and important to him to impress the Jews. 
So he goes out and he arrests James. This is the brother of John. Remember the twins, the guys that were like, hey, let's call down fire and roast these fools, Jesus. And he goes, ah, that's a bad idea. You don't really know what spirit you're coming from in, in saying that. That's who this is. So he's, he's uh, you know, important in the church. He's, he is uh, sharing doctrine, all those things. He gets two lines. Herod wants to please the Jews. He nabs James. He kills him. He sees that this makes the Jews happy. It furthers his plan. So now he nabs Peter. And the whole rest of the chapter is about Peter. But James is dead. He's martyred. He's gone. Don't you think maybe his brother John cared about that? Don't you think his folks cared about that? Don't you think his cousins cared about that? Don't you think, why is it that James gets two lines and is slain and Peter has this deliverance? And furthermore, why the big hubbub? That's what I thought about when I was reading this. Why does the angel have to come? The word that he struck him in the side is literally that he struck him in the side. It's not that he was like, wake up, little buddy. It'd be the equivalent, it's the, it's the Greek word for like he went, whoosh, wake up. Why, does the, why do the chains have to come off miraculously? We already know that God can teleport, teleport people because he did that with Philip. We've already read about that. We already know that he can deliver people out of prison because he did it to Peter. He did it to, to John. He's already delivered people out of prison. There's so much that we know about what God can do, and yet he does none of it in this account. And I think that's worthy of some questions, isn't it? I think that's worthy of wondering, why does James die and Peter live? Why go through this big rigmarole with an angel appearing? One of the other questions I was wondering, how do they know the angel appeared with light? Luke wasn't there. Who's writing it? Peter was dead asleep, so he doesn't know it got filled with light. So who told him it got filled with light? Maybe it was the Holy Spirit. Maybe, you know, we only know that they were ordered to be executed. There's no record that these... these uh, uh, Soldiers were actually executed. There would have been 16 deaths, although it's, it's probable. But as you're reading through this, and you just kind of, you can kind of get taken with, and not, and not inappropriately, but we can get taken with the miracle of Peter's removal. But if you're talking about purely efficiency, this is pretty much a fail. Because there have been way more efficient ways to remove Peter from the prison. Teleportation, for example, as we saw with Philip and, and different things like that. There could have been way more efficient ways to not have James killed. He could have just gotten away. We saw Jesus do that. We saw Paul do that. They were just, they just got away. Peter could have never been arrested. There's a million things that we could look at and say, it didn't have to go down this way. That God in his sovereignty could have absolutely stopped this tragedy and absolutely did not have to have Peter go through that whole thing. So why? Why does it happen? Why, you know, why is there suffering in the world? Why do bad things happen? Isn't this kind of like the universal question that all of us wonder about? If you talk to somebody on the street, why is it this instead of that? Why do the, why do the trade centers get hit, but other you know, terrorist plot get foiled? Why is it that this warlord gets to just ravage one tribe and one, another tribe is delivered? Why is it that the Jews are rounded up but other people are not? Why, there's a million why questions, aren't there? 
And it's inappropriate as Christians for us to just go, well, whatever. You know, I, I, it's inappropriate to just dismiss it. It's, it's, so we should think about it. And so the, the, the first thing that we're going to talk about this morning is where does suffering come from? Because God didn't create suffering, right? When you look at what God originally created, he created a, a world. Where, this is, we're abbreviating this, right? <laughs> he created a universe. He created a globe. On that globe, he created continents. He created land. He created water. He created birds, animals, all these things. He had previous to the world established what he would do and how he would go about it. Previous to the world creation, he knew there would be suffering and he knew there would be sin. And yet, he's, because we know that Christ in heaven, in, in heaven's estimation or in heaven's account, was crucified from the foundation of the world. So even though that Jesus came from eternity into time, you can maybe think of it as like a, a membrane, that essentially time is this thing that exists inside of eternity, that eternity is outside of time. It doesn't necessarily operate on time's basis, but time operates on eternity's laws. And so Jesus kind of passed through this membrane from eternity into time to accomplish what was always known in eternity. Does that make sense? Probably not. But it's one of the... <laughs> Because eternity always is, right? We only, we only think linearly, right? Everything happens in a line. I was born, some stuff happened, and then I'll die. But that's not how eternity works. Eternity isn't solely linear. You, what, what was accomplished, what knew what would be happened in eternity was brought into time and accomplished for our sakes, okay? So God, knowing the whole time, he creates man, he creates uh, this earth, all these things, and he creates man with one of the, the most powerful thing, and we've talked about this before, the most powerful thing that each one of us possesses in the world, and it's our free will, right? Without free will, God would have created robots, but that's not what he wanted. God's purpose, if we go through from the Old Testament to the New, God's purpose is to create for himself a people, and he, and he puts it in different ways through the Old and the New Testament. It's put as a people for himself, uh, he calls his people a precious possession. He calls his people his inheritance. He calls his people the bride of his son, Jesus. All the, He calls his people his sons and daughters. All the uh, analogy or metaphor that we have for what God is creating in human beings is relational. Does that make sense? It's all relational. And so you cannot, have you ever watched, there's some YouTubes now, there's some pretty wild uh, AI that's being developed um, AI, I still think, is an exaggeration from what it really is. It's, it's actually just very amazingly programmed computers that they stuck eyeballs on and you know, all this technology. It's actually pretty darn creepy looking, to be honest. But the, you, know, you can speak to these AI mannequins, and they can answer you. They can laugh. They can smile. They can do all that. But guess what? It took human beings... You know, here we're, I don't know how long it took uh, you know, to develop the technology. We'll go 6,000 years from creation-ish until now. It, it's, or however, you know, I'm not into the age of the earth, but however you want to say it is. And just now human beings can program something to respond to it. But they have to give the programming. And it can learn your words. These AI, they can learn your words. They can, they can mimic your facial features because they have software that's been written by humans that allow them to make this, this AI, artificial intelligence, allow them to learn uh, what words they can say that make you smile and what words, just like human beings do in a sense. But it's still a robot. 
It can't love you. It, can't, it cannot feel pleasure. It can only mimic all those things because it's a mere program. It has no free choice. It cannot do anything that it has not been programmed to do. Does that make sense? Anytime you have something without free will, you have, you, you have an absence of love. It can be pleasant, it can be fun, it can be all those things, but it cannot be relational. And everything that God has done from creation of man until this very day has always been to fulfill his purpose to have a relationship with his people. And that's, again, that it'd be a different sermon. I want to get off topic, but that's where we can, as human beings, really lose sight of what God is trying to do in our lives and mistake it for laws and regulations to make us give up stuff or to make us feel bad or whatever it might be. When in reality, the things that God calls us to do away with and to reject out of our lives are things that prevent the relationship that He wants with us. So He creates human beings, He puts human beings in a perfect place in a world, and they're innocent. They've never sinned before. There's many things they, that they don't, they don't know about. That they have, all they know in their world, up till, till Satan makes a visit, is that God talks with them and walks with them in the cool of the day, and they tend a garden. And so, enter Satan. And this is a, we don't know all the history behind Satan, but I think this is an important idea, that Satan was sinning before humans. Because it is Satan that draws humans away from God in their innocency. Now, Satan is an interesting character because he was created by God. He's uh, noted to be an angel of light. He's noted to be uh, Lucifer, or is it the son of the dawn. Uh, I can't remember all the titles that he has throughout the scripture, but he is noticed or acknowledged in the scripture as being this amazingly illuminated, beautiful creature that God had created. And so Satan comes to this point, and again, I'm not trying to talk about angelic psychology because I don't know, and I think you have to be careful with that. But evidently, angels are also able to choose. They don't have the souls of humans, but they're also able to choose. But for some reason with the angels, when they choose, their choice is permanent. There's no redemption for angels, and I don't know why that is. I'm not going to surmise why that is. I'm just going to go that God is good and God is just, and someday we'll figure that out. But Satan makes a choice, and a third of heaven makes a choice with him to rebel against God and to say, we don't want what you have, we're going to roll with our own plan. And God, as a God of love and justice and care and relationship, allows Satan into the garden. You ever thought about that? God knows he's there. He's not fooled about the fact that he's there. He's not fooled about the fact that Satan's bumping around on the earth, evidently just kind of hanging out, doing his thing, even though there's only two people on the planet at that point. And he's in the garden. And, and Satan uses the free will of human beings and the temptation of human beings, the, the desire of human beings, to convince humans ultimately that God is not actually good. And the scripture tells us, and the idea of the scripture is that, that Eve was deceived by Satan, but Adam rebelled against God. Does that make sense? And so when Eve is deceived by Satan, Adam jumps in, he also partakes of the fruit, and human beings fall, and they become sinners. And not just human beings, but the world begins to corrupt. Somehow, and I think we mentioned this last week, somehow the earth and the creation is not linked with Satan because it didn't begin to corrupt when Satan fell. It began to corrupt when human beings fell. 
At least that's, the, that's what we have in the Scripture for us. Not to bring light to the Scripture, but to say what the Scripture says. Sin brought suffering. Up until that point, and, and, and notably, man's sin brought suffering. Satan's sin helped orchestrate what man did, but it was human beings' sin that caused suffering. And that has never stopped. So a lot of times when we look at difficulties in this world, when we look at you know, the, the whys and the hows, and, and we'll address that because we're not dismissing the whys and the hows, but we have to understand that from creation until now, the why and the how is because of us, because of human beings. Why is there warlords? Because there's sin. There's greed. The love of money is the root of all evil. Why is there child molesting? Why is there hatred? Why is there violence? Because someone wants something that they should not want or in a way that they should not want it. And they act on that. And again, I I don't want to repeat myself over and over again, but this is why free will is our most important power. It is the very thing that creates a genuine, loving, experiential relationship with God. And it's the very thing that destroys the world around us every single day. You say, well, why is there cancer? Why is there disease? Why are these things? Well, some of that is man-created. I'm not, I, I, obviously, I don't know the full origin of cancer, where it came from, but we do know that there are things that cause cancer, right? I'm not, I don't care if people smoke, but cigarettes cause cancer. Who cultivates that? We do. We cultivate it. Humans do. There's lots of things that are bad for us. Alcohol, across the board, is the biggest killer in the world. Alcohol is. When you start talking about vehicle deaths, accidents, heart disease, all the things that happen, well, where does so much of that come from? Something we create. And why do we create it? To deal with the problems that we've created with our sin. Uh, one of my roommates, super good God, before he was saved, he was very open. He's like, dude, he goes, it took me a six-pack to go to sleep at night. It was because I was just so, the, the world just broke me up. I, I, didn't, I was so worried about my classes. He was a, a Cal Poly student uh, down there in San Luis Obispo. He's worried about my classes. I was worried about, you know, just life. I just, why? Because this life is pretty horrible without Christ. Yeah, there's glimmers of hope. So in answer to the question of why is there suffering in this world, why is it? It's because human beings have sinned. And let me clarify this. Sin isn't just like this old term, right? We know this. It's not just this old term of like naughtiness. Don't have sex before marriage. Don't do this. Sin is literally missing the mark. Now, we know the mark because the mark is love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself, right? The mark over and over in the Old and the New Testament is very clear. God calls human beings to love purely, morally, and without fail. And none of us have ever done that. It's never happened. No human being other than Jesus has ever loved in that way. Now, we know from uh, the Scripture that love, that kind of love comes through Christ and through the Holy Spirit and that kind of changing. But sin ultimately is to not love someone or to not love God. It's to miss what God has. If people followed God's law, if we followed God's law, we wouldn't need locks or keys. We wouldn't need police. We wouldn't need prisons. We wouldn't need any of that. But the the fact of the matter is we don't do that because we esteem his, His things as better than our own. So suffering 
comes from sin. Suffering comes from fallen human beings. Suffering is, is squarely on our shoulders. And I bet everyone in this room can point to a time where we cause someone suffering. So if we're going to ask the why of suffering, then we have to extend that why to us. Why didn't you stop me, God, when I caused someone suffering? When I streamed someone down at work, when I called someone a loser at school, when I judged someone in my mind, when I treated someone poorly because my latte was cold, when I yelled at some fast food worker, when I you know, accused someone of something they didn't do, why didn't God rush in and stop me on the spot? Why not? Because there'd be no relationship. Would you want that? Is that something that you would like in your life, that every time you're about to do something that is wrong, that God just says, stop? No, there'd be a certain convenience to that. But then there would be no choice in us, right? And then we could never, God could never proclaim through the ages, which is one of the proclamations, these people chose me and they are mine. He could never say that. It would just be, I created these people and now I forced them to be with me. Something that we, if we ever saw that in life, we never praise that, do we? In fact, we call that abuse. We call that kidnapping, right? When, when someone forces another person to act or to be, act a certain way, be in a certain place, or do something, we call that evil, don't we? And so on the one hand, oftentimes we're like, why God? Because we want the evil to stop, but then on the other hand, we, we say, no, God, you can't make me do that. That would be evil. Do you see the, the dilemma? So human beings end up bringing evil into the world. Us, we, we. We have some champions in Adam and Eve. I mean, they kind of got the ball rolling for us, for us, but we would have done the same thing. So Adam and Eve fall, right? And so we, we trickle down to here, right? We trickle down to whatever this would be, 40 AD, 45 AD. We trickle down to 40, you know, about eight years or so, maybe, maybe 12 years after Jesus has left the planet and he's in heaven. And James is killed. And, and, John is, excuse me, and Peter is spared. Well, we know, the, we know the why of why James is killed. Because Herod wanted it. We don't know the why of why wasn't he spared when God could have. Can we agree with that? I think we can all, God, could God have stopped James from dying? 100%. But he didn't. And that's where I think usually our whys kick in. Why didn't he spare James? And I bet all of us have those thoughts in our own lives about people around us. Why wasn't this person spared? Why wasn't that person spared? Why did I, whatever, marry a spouse that turned out to be crazy, even though that's, I think, 100% of the time for all of us, including my wife. I mean, why did I, why did this happen? Why, 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 why? And this isn't a cop-out, but I want to be clear. We don't know. <laughs> we will never know all the whys. But what we do know is that God is dealing with what has happened. Does that make sense? So we don't know all the whys of why things happen. We will one day know that. In fact, I'll, I'll read it for you. You can turn there if you'd like to. But in 1 Corinthians 13, this is, I think, one of the most comforting gospel promises. We read it last week. We didn't talk about it. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 
So even though we don't know the full why now, we do know we see in a glass darkly, and one day we will know. Now, we, for us, we're like, I see in a mirror dimly. What does that mean? Because our mirrors in the year 2020, uh, we can do all sorts of things. We can whip out our smartphones and turn the camera around. We can just look into a nice glass mirror. But mirrors in Roman times, the nicest mirrors in Roman times, were either polished obsidian or they were glass over lead and it was warped. You know, our glass is nice and straight and so forth. That's, that's not theirs. It wasn't like that. No one truly ever got to see what they really looked like. No one did until uh, was about, uh, I think, the third century, about 300 AD, Egyptians started using actual glass mirrors where they had decent reflections. But in this point, nobody really knows what they look like. It's through a glass dimly. It's through a mirror. Dark. It's smudged. So you can kind of see, or maybe you've looked in a lake before and you can kind of see it, but as soon as there's any kind of wind or anything like that, it gets... So the point is, he goes, right now, Paul's saying this. And he's, and he's saying, look, and in this, in this sense, he's talking about spiritual giftings and so forth, but he's saying, look, everything that we see, everything that we know, everything that God is doing, we see it through a glass darkly. We see it as if you look in a mirror and look at yourself, yourself is there, and you're probably not like oblonged and weird shaped and so forth, so you see, but you don't see yourself clearly. You cannot fully know what your face looks like looking in a mirror at that time. And so he says, but one day we'll know as we are known. We'll fully know as we are known. So, so the whys and the hows and all that, one day we will know. So this is not God like trying to bogart secrets and just say, you should have blind faith, and if you don't, I hate you. Or you know, whatever weird things we conjure up in our minds of why God does what he does. But he's working. One day we'll fully understand it, and he's doing great things. In another place, what is he doing about it right now? Well, in Romans... He tells us very clearly in Romans chapter 8, he says this. In verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He's talking about people that are attempting to walk with the Lord. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Just as a side note to take this with you, God knows that you don't know how to pray. <laughs> he understands. Have you ever just been wordless? Have you ever been in a situation that's so jacked that you're just like, I don't even, I can't even, I got nothing. I need help. It worked for Peter. He's sinking in the ocean. Lord, save me. The Lord didn't go, well, what do you want me to do for you, Peter? How do you want me to save you? Do you have a plan in this? I'm a little at a loss. No, he just reached out and he grabbed him. The Holy Spirit's interceding for us. He knows we don't know how to pray. Verse 27, And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, which we're not going to cover, but essentially saying that the Father interprets what the Spirit is asking for as the Spirit that's attached to our soul, His Spirit, God's Spirit in us, and the Spirit intercedes to God, and God is able to understand and then work. In verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what is God doing? 
He's working. James 1 tells us that suffering brings about a maturity in us. Romans chapter 5 illustrates the same point, that when we go through suffering, taking that suffering and giving it to God, whatever that suffering may be, whether it's the loss of a, a twin brother in James and John's case, whether it's the loss of a child, whatever it might be. And I'm not, I don't say those things as cavalier. Does that make sense? I've never experienced the loss of a child. So is it easier for me to stand up here and say God will work through the loss of a child than to go through it? Of course it is. I would, I would never presume to try to pretend like I knew that kind of loss in my life. But at the same time, the Scripture promises that He can work through that. He'll do, he can work it for good. It doesn't mean it'll be good that a child died or that it'll be good that this event occurred that was tragic and brought suffering, but that through the, the suffering, through experiencing it and walking through it and knowing the comfort of the Holy Spirit and those around you, that that can bring good in your life. In 1 Corinthians 1, one of the, the, or 2 Corinthians 1, one of the points that Paul makes is that when we go through suffering, the comfort that God gives us supernaturally, we are then able to give experientially to someone else. So, for example, if you have lost a child, you are able to comfort and to walk through that with someone else that someone like me never could. But it all boils down to, and especially illustrated in Romans chapter 5, that there's a progression, that first there's suffering, and then there's us being willing to walk through it. Does that make sense? So we can suffer and get absolutely nothing and bring destruction. Why? Because sin brings suffering. So if I suffer something that could be seemingly random, Jesus makes the point in, in Luke chapter 13, two things. He says, do you think that when the Tower of Shalom fell on those, I can't remember, 14 people, do you think that they were more sinful than the other people? He says, no. He goes, do you think that the people who got their blood mixed with pig's blood by Pilate, that they were somehow more sinful people? No. He says, no, they weren't. These are just things that happen. So if when I go through suffering, if something just happens, sometimes there's things that happen. Somebody did not design this Tower of Shalom well, and it fell down, and it killed 14 people, and Jesus apparently was fairly contemporary because Jesus talks about it. Whose fault was it? Well, maybe it was the engineers. Maybe it was bad stone. We have no idea. But 14 people end up dying. Pilate kills a bunch of people, then takes their blood and mingles it with pig blood to offer to an image of Caesar. Radically insulting. And Jesus is making the point there. He's saying, look, that didn't happen because there were more, more sinful people. It just happened because it's a sinful world. And he says, the, and, and you'll perish also, not saying you'll get killed by a tower, but you also will perish spiritually if you do not repent and trust God. So if something happens in my life, whether it be deliberate, Pilate mixing someone's blood, you know, some sort of deliberate action, uh, a murder or whatever it might be, someone being irresponsible with water and poison, whatever it might be, if they're suffering from that, or if they're suffering just because something happened, a tsunami, an earthquake, a fire, something just happened. What I decide to do with that suffering will determine, with my free will, I can actually shut God's fruit off from my life because I dwell on the suffering. I begin to blame others. I begin to blame God. 
All those things. Rather than just saying, Lord, I don't know how, and this hurts, but I know that you can use this for good in my life. I'm asking you to start that, please. I'm asking you for the power of your Holy Spirit in my life to begin something where this bears fruit because I'm not going to bear fruit. I think a lot of times we think, we take these, these promises and these processes and we think we're going to bear fruit. Our faithfulness is going to bear fruit. I'm being faithful to God and keeping a stiff upper lip and so that'll bear fruit. No, God's Holy Spirit physically, mentally, spiritually changing us bears fruit. Stiff upper lips don't bear fruit. Usually, by just trying to like pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, one of two things happens. We get incredibly proud of ourselves because we did it, or we just, just absolutely tank because we did it. And there's all the condemnation and these things that come with it. So in this, in this amazing, broken world that we live in, every day, in all of our suffering, we have the ability to grow or to shrink in it. To live or to die in it. To bless or to curse in it. And that responsibility solely lies on us. It doesn't lie on our government, our parents. It doesn't lie on our bosses, our spouses. It solely lies on us. So what can we do about it? So we know where it comes from. We know what God is doing about it. What can we do about it? In 1 Peter... Flip over there if you'd like, or I'll read it to you. In 1 Peter chapter 5, this is kind of a <clears throat> Peter writing uh, to people who are going through uh, suffering and difficulty. And he's beginning to sum it up, and he says this. Verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober, not somber, but sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, Peter ties his, this, this first letter of his up by simply saying this, cast your cares on God, which that sounds very simple, and very, just let's do that. Have you ever noticed that so many times, like, we read something like, cast our cares, but because of our anger, because of our emotional state, whatever it might be, our rebellion, we don't do that. Instead, we, we internalize it. We don't deal with it. We get angrier and angrier. And here we have these promises. And again, I don't know about your mind, but my mind is wicked. And I can read these promises and I read like, he's going to restore you. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. And I think to myself, well, what about those 16 soldiers? Why do they have to die if they did? That seems a little rude. 
It was Roman law, actually, if you're not familiar with it. Roman law stated that if you were in charge of a prisoner, if you were, whether you were a prison guard or a soldier, whoever you were, if you were employed in the emperor's service and you lost a prisoner, then you received what that prisoner was to get. So, for example, if you were watching a prisoner that was there to get a flogging and you lost that prisoner, you got that prisoner's flogging. In this case, there were 16 soldiers, probably that many because they, Peter already escaped from prison once, but there's 16 soldiers that are employed to keep Peter in there. And so when 16 soldiers lost Peter, it was not uncommon for Herod to order their execution. But you say to yourself, why did they have to die? They're just innocent. They're not innocent. They may be innocent in this. There's not one who is innocent. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Perhaps for some of these 16 soldiers, as they're kneeling on the ground facing a soldier's death, which typically was to be take a sword through the back of the neck in Rome, as they're, as they're on their knees, perhaps they were able to cry out to the living God. Lord, save me. Perhaps their death sentence is the very thing that ushers them into eternity. We don't know. We do know that another statement that God makes in 2 Peter 3 is that God is not willing that any should perish. The reason God stays and does not return back to the earth and just make everything right right now is because He's working all these things out in His way, in His time, to bring people to salvation. Do you know why you're suffering today? So that other people can be saved. That's why you're suffering today. You know, you're walking through just a horrible time in life right now. Maybe not, this isn't World War I, this isn't World War II. I understand those things. But these, these are difficult times, isolating times, scary times. Do you know why you're walking through this and not with Jesus, living it up in heaven? So that other people can get saved. And so that stuff in our own hearts can be worked out as we give it to God. Why is there suffering in the world? Because of human beings, because we brought it here. What is God doing about it? He's using it for good in your life and for the good of people around you. And what can we do about it? We can keep coming back to God and casting the cares of our suffering. When we find sin in our heart, a lack of love for God or a lack of love for others, we can repent and come back to God and know the eternal life today, that the joy and the peace of forgiveness and washing and being with God. Yeah, there's a lot of rough stuff that's going on out there today and a lot of rough stuff that we are going through as human beings, but it's for glory, which means weightiness. Not like everybody can applaud you when you walk into heaven, but for, for weightiness, for, for God to look upon you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord so that people around you that are suffering radically can find Christ and find life in their suffering. No suffering has ever, has, has, has ever been pointless. It could have been pointless, I guess. But no suffering was ever beyond God using it for good. That's what the Scripture says. So we can choose to believe that and move forward and see God do miraculous things, or we can wallow in it and be angry and in this life reap the fruit of it. And it's going to be disappointing. So I encourage you, if you're suffering today, if you're going through hard times, you know, hey, you can come up, we'd be glad to pray for you. Or if you're not comfortable with that, you know, grab someone, but cast your cares on God, whether with someone or, or by yourself, cast your cares on Him. Be honest with Him, and He's going to bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your loving kindness. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this example that we have with uh, James and Peter. 
Lord, we thank you uh, for the suffering that we've received in our life and the fruit that you've borne out of it. Lord, forgive us when we reject suffering, when we uh, retreat to ourselves, when we uh, blame you, blame others. And Lord, help us to be able to look to you, be filled with your spirit, and to allow that, that suffering to work something marvelous in us. Thank you for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.